Acts chapter 21. On a windy day in the windy city of Chicago some years ago, I found myself in an airport shuttle driven by a windy woman. She was on a mission to teach us all kinds of things about Chicago on this lengthy trip, including the tidbit that the Windy City is a nickname inspired not by meteorology but by politics. At the time, the wind was about blowing our van over, so it was hard to believe. But somewhere in this long ride, she locked into me and she explained that she was the descendant of African slaves, slaves brought to this country. She then told me the tragic account of the history of her clan and how they were forced to leave plantations in the South and to march for weeks to take up a hopeless existence in an unsettled and hostile territory to the West. That was intriguing. What was surprising is what she said next. Without blinking, very matter-of-factly, she then says, and it was your people who did that to my people. I couldn't think of an answer at the time, but I thought later, my people weren't even here when that happened. But it would not have dissuaded her from holding me accountable because of my ethnicity. I thought that was a rather strange exchange. And then, as I thought about it, I thought, you know, her thinking really is quite in line with the world as it is. Alienation thrives like a pandemic in this world. Alienation of individuals, alienation of ethnic groups, of people groups of various sorts, and nations. This alienation prevails in the sinister shadows of realities such as slavery and racism and war and genocide and injustice, oppression and family breakdown, divorce and litigation, neglect and rivalry, abuse and violation of civil rights, and on and on it goes. We live in an alienated world. From nations to siblings, from warring global factions to kindergartners at play, alienated relationships thrive everywhere on this planet. We are a world in desperate need of the balm of reconciliation. The problem is reconciliation is a rare jewel. It's hard to come by. I remember when I was a kid, I would hear news reports in the newspaper and the radio of the problems between Israel and some nation in the Middle East. And I remember distinctly to this day just saying it would be so easy. All they have to do is come together and decide not to fight anymore. One day, they could all just say, this is harder than getting along. The peace of reconciliation should easily trump the frustration of alienation. Why don't they just decide to quit this? But as you mature, you come to realize just how natural it is to fight. How natural it is to take offense. How natural to just not get along with somebody just because you don't like them. Well, in the history of alienation, no tougher case ever existed than the alienation between first century Jews and Gentiles. The entire Roman Empire was rife with this tension. At the Gentile power base of Rome, Jews had recently been expelled from the city. Imagine that. From the whole city, the center of the empire, you all leave. Get out. We don't want you. And if the Jews had that capacity, they would do the same thing 
with the Romans who occupied their city of Jerusalem. They would throw them out on their ear if they could. In fact, there was great turmoil. Jerusalem at this time was a cauldron of alienation. Add to this mix in Jerusalem the hostilities between the Hellenistic and the Hebraic Jews. Many times they were at one another's throats. And then throw into that mix the fever pitch hostilities between Jews and the new followers of Jesus. These hostilities had tremendous effect upon Jerusalem as we enter chapter 21 of Acts. And the Apostle Paul, this Jewish Christian and missionary to the Gentiles, is headed toward Jerusalem. You might as well flick a match into a can of gasoline. Why do I say that? This is a Christian Jew. This is a Hellenistic Jew. And this man is traveling to Jerusalem with at least eight Gentiles that he now calls his brothers in the faith. He's traveling with this sizable gift of money for Jewish Christians, and we would say, well, that's a wonderful thing, but many who want the alienation to continue will not take this well. They won't like this gift. They'll see it as trying to buy off some favor. His agenda is to encourage the reconciliation of Jewish and Gentile Christians in the church, but he is walking into a cauldron. It is an impossible mission. What motivates Paul to go to Jerusalem in this environment? His motivation is that he follows a Savior who accomplished reconciliation on the cross. And in line with that Savior, he goes with courage to Jerusalem to seek to reconcile believers and to encourage the church of Jesus Christ. In the first few verses as we enter into chapter 21, we find Paul's journey to Jerusalem in Jesus' footsteps. We'll draw that parallel later in the sermon more pointedly, but he's really in a very similar sense heading to Jerusalem like Christ did as he came to Jerusalem to die. For Paul, it is to be incarcerated, and that is made very clear as he makes his journey. We pick up at verse 1, and when he had parted from them and set sail, he came by a straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, he went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. So at Tyre, in verse 4, he seeks out the disciples. We stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Tyre, this major seaport and trading post, they're there for this week, and the ship probably loading and unloading cargo. This stop permits Paul and his team to seek out the believers in Tyre and to commune with them. The church was likely formed there when the mission left out of Jerusalem because of the persecution with Stephen and the Hellenistic Jews that were scattered at that time. Chapter 11 and verse 19 gives the account of this where the church has started there. But let's go back to 20, 21 of Acts. And remember here this journey of Paul and this strange thing that at every port there are people that are telling him he's in trouble. Verse 21 of chapter 20, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God, of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is his message. 
And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. We have what might appear to be something of a contradiction here with chapter 21 and verse 4. He is constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Here at Tyre, the Spirit is saying to these people to limit Paul from going to Jerusalem. I think just putting them together, we may not have a perfect solution, but it's pretty obvious what's taking place. The Spirit of God is continuing to reveal that Paul will suffer. These believers expressing the fruit of the Spirit, which is love in the Spirit, Loving him are saying what you would say to someone that you love. Don't do this. You're going to harm yourself, not in violation to the prophecy as such. But remember, there are times when prophets speak something, they say this will happen, but there's repentance on the part of the person or a change of mind on the part of the person that the prophecy is warning and and they turn from their course. They don't have this fatalistic view. Well, God said it, you have to go and you have to suffer. God is revealing that you will suffer in Jerusalem. The question is, will you go? You have the freedom not to go. We would like to stop you. But Paul says, no, indeed, I do not have the freedom. I'm able to turn my body around and not go to Jerusalem, but I am constrained by the Spirit to fulfill this mission. I must go to Jerusalem. Verse 5, When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board, that is Luke, Paul, the team, goes on board the ship, and they, these believers at Tyre returned home. Had to be a sad journey home. But what a beautiful scene of Christian solidarity. Here were some people reconciled in Christ. Caring for one another, praying with one another, partnering in the great cause of the gospel, probably unabashed by the fact that they are there in public, kneeling down in the sand on the beach on this massive port. There would have been many people. And praying and seeking the face of God to protect Paul, this evangelist, and his team. They part undoubtedly having been greatly encouraged and built up in the faith and go home. Paul and the group journeys further south down the coastline. Verse 7, When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. Probably by ship, the journey toward Jerusalem continues. On the next day, verse 8, We departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Caesarea is that magnificent port city of Jerusalem built by Herod the Great. Philip, you remember, he's one of the seven. One of what seven? He's one of the seven we met in Acts chapter 6 that were chosen by the body to administer tables, food, to the widows in Jerusalem. Long time ago. This man also was a great evangelist. Remember, he was the one that went up into Samaria and proclaimed the gospel of Christ there to Samaritans of all people. He's the one that led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. And then he worked his way up the coast north, and apparently, and while well, we know in chapter 8 and verse 4, he stopped at Caesarea. Apparently, this becomes now his home base. Here we find him many years later, 
an elderly man, a statesman in the church, this great evangelist. I mean, he has four unmarried daughters who prophesy. Now, people make all kinds of stuff out of this. This is the proof text, some almost seem to say, that women should be preaching in the church. It's completely against what Paul has said elsewhere, but it doesn't matter. This seems to give us that uh, guidance because they're prophesying, and everyone knows that prophesying is not only predicting the future, but is preaching the truth. Well, I think if we take this in context, it doesn't conflict with any direction given in the New Testament documents. I think what we have here, however, are some godly young women living in the house of a godly man. It's a very warm and beautiful situation, a place of great encouragement to Paul, and a place that impressed Luke. You go into the home of a godly man who has four godly daughters, and you're going to write about it too. It's a wonderful thing. And they are receiving, I think, messages from the Spirit of God that are aiding the church to know God's will. It does not mean that they were the pastors of the church here in Caesarea. That's a leap in logic that we're not able to make, and I think, in fact, would be entirely misguided according to other passages of Scripture. But what they are are godly women who are participating in the body of Christ and faithful in their efforts. This is a faithful, godly family. You'd love to, I'm sure, sit around the table with them and hear the stories of the past as Philip taught what happened as he led people to Christ and probably was still doing so and talked about the things of God. This was a great home, a great place for Paul to stop. And there may seem to almost be some parallel with Jesus stopping at the home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus before he went on to Jerusalem to die. Verse 10, while we were staying for many days, notice that phrase, many days, he's been hurrying like crazy to get to Jerusalem. There's timing going on here. We wait now for many days because their journey had gone well. They'd made good time, and it's not time to enter Jerusalem just yet. A prophet, while we're there, named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. What's going on here? It's a little strange scene, of course, but remember the Old Testament rec- records a number of prophets who mine their prophecies. Think, just pick out one, the prophet Ahijah. He's on the road, he sees Jeroboam. Jeroboam has a nice new cloak on. He's probably pretty proud of it, and Ahijah the prophet comes and rips it off of him. And not only that, then he takes it and starts to rip it up. He rips it into 12 portions. And just before Jeremiah probably clocks him, he hands him ten of the pieces back and says, so God is handing to you ten portions of Israel. Now, Jeremiah never forgot that. And I'm sure he didn't hurt Ahijah when he realized what God was doing and prophesying through him. Jeremiah was a godless man. But it was just a way of making that very pointed. Similarly, acting out this prophecy, Agabus takes Paul's long cloth belt, not a belt like we have. It would be pretty hard to bind your ankles and your wrists with one of the belts like we would wear today. But this long cloth belt wrapped several times around the middle, perhaps to hold money and different things in that belt. He takes it off and he wraps his wrists and then he goes down and wraps his ankles or the other way around. But he's wrapping himself up saying, this is how the owner of this belt will be bound in Jerusalem. It's just a prophecy, just a picture of what will happen. Well, I can tell you, imagine what's going on in Paul's heart right there. 
This is a difficult thing to realize. But I will be incarcerated for the work that I'm doing. And he could never forget it. He's been told all along all kinds of problems are going to come, but now this gets really close to home and very specific. The Gentiles will arrest Paul in Jerusalem. And those with Paul respond in the only way that love could. Verse 12. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. You remember last week? He's just saying it again. I died before I came. I died before I came. Chapter 20 and verse 24 gives us the heart of Paul's thinking. I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I have a journey, I have a mission, I must complete it to honor my Lord and to serve the cause of the gospel. Don't break my heart. Don't push me up against this. God is pushing me to go. Don't push me away. What do they say? Verse 14, They have now made the ultimate effort to stop him, and he is on the last leg of this journey, and they say, Since we could not persuade him, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Sometimes the will of the Lord leads to heartache and trial and difficulty. They recognized that, and they backed away. Well, why does Paul have to go to Jerusalem? We have a sense that the Spirit is, in, is pressing him to do so. But why precisely must he go to Jerusalem? Suffice it to say here, and we'll talk a little bit more about it, but suffice it here to say that Paul senses he must face the consequences of his mission to the Gentiles. If he does not go to Jerusalem in person and face the Hebraic Christians, there is an even more serious risk than being incarcerated, and that is that the body of Jesus Christ, the visible church, will be divided. That there will be a Hebraic division. That there will be a Hellenistic division. That there will be a Gentile division. There's great trouble in all of this, and it all hinges on him and what he's been doing to reach Gentiles. Not only on him, but he is one of the leading evangelists among the Gentiles at this point. So he wants to go to Jerusalem to try to fix things as far as humans can. The church of Jesus cannot be divided, Paul thinks, at this point in time, in this way. He argues this way in the book of Ephesians, as we read earlier, because Jesus died to reconcile Jews and Gentiles in one body. We cannot allow that body to splinter. Remember, he was held away from the amphitheater in Ephesus. Nobody's holding him back on this one. He's going in to the crowd. And he is going to do all that he can, no matter the danger, to bring the body of Christ together. The power of such an unparalleled reconciliation that we find in the cross proves the power of the Gospel, proves the power of Jesus Christ reigning today. The Lordship of Jesus Christ conquers all the walls of separation erected by man. 
We must maintain this. Paul knows this, and so he goes into Jerusalem, willing to face the consequences, laboring for unity at Jerusalem, the seat of Jewish influence. Then he will leave to go to Rome, the seat of Gentile influence. He's not going to get there the way that he had originally planned, but he will accomplish that goal. But above all, Paul goes to Jerusalem to witness the truth of the gospel. That's the whole point and all of its implications. Verse 15, After these days then we got ready. That word got ready is a pretty technical term in the Greek text. It means they packed horses, possibly uh, donkeys. It might mean that they packed their things just to travel on the road and walking. But we went up then to Jerusalem, about a three-day journey by walking. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us. We're down at the, uh, on the sea at Caesarea, this great port city. They're working their way upward in elevation, southward in location to Jerusalem. And some go with him, and in part it appears that they go with him because they bring him to the house of Mason of, of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So they, you know, I mean, it, it, it's, what's the point here? Did they just kind of pull into the Motel 6 for the night and we're given that little information here? Is that the point? I don't think so at all. This is a profound verse. Mason is in Jerusalem. He is a Hellenistic Jew. Put that together with what you know about the volatile situation in Jerusalem. He's a Hellenistic Jew. Not only that, now he's opening his doors to a number of Gentiles to come and to live in his home with him in Jerusalem. And he welcomes them as brothers. This is an amazing scene. He trusts these men and he takes the risk to open his doors to a despised people in Jerusalem. There's a great legend told in our extended family of an uncle that coached a university here in, in Minnesota in Duluth and uh, coached a basketball team. This would have been, I think, the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, but he took that team here from far north and took them to the deep south to play a, a university down there. They came to a restaurant, as the story's told, and the owners of the restaurant stood up and said, you have black athletes on your team. We will serve the others, we will not serve them. The great part of the story is the whole team got together, surrounded the counter and said, you're going to serve all of us, aren't you? <laughs> and they said, okay. <laughs> and they did. Just the end of the story. That's a long ways from here, isn't it? We don't understand that world here in Minnesota and in this day. There's a lot of people who did understand that world, who lived in that era of alienation between ethnicities, particularly in that way in the South. Now, if we could just put ourselves there, get a little bit of the sense of what it might be like to travel with teammates black and white on a team in the deep south during that kind of an era, multiply that ten times, and that's what it's like taking Gentiles into Jerusalem as your friends. And Mason opens the door of his house and says, come in. You're all welcome here. This is a man who knew the reconciling power of Jesus Christ. You're my brothers. 
And it reminds us what Jesus is doing. The reigning Jesus continues on His reconciling mission and He calls us to serve these same purposes. Our call is not to be incarcerated in Jerusalem for the Gospel. As far as we know, that will never be any of our calls. It may be just to cross the street to invite a neighbor to Friends Sunday next week. It might be to come on Wednesday night and to go from house to house handing out invitations and striking up conversations with people, inviting them to Friend Sunday next week. It may be to reach out to an enemy. There's the reaching out to the unbeliever as we share the Gospel with them and as we try to unite with and talk to people with whom we are alienated. I hope you have relationships like that. I have people in my life, in this community, that absolutely despise what I teach. They live their life in hostility against it. And yet we converse, we talk, we know one another, we interact with each other. Are there people that despise the message of the Gospel with whom you are interacting? Breaking down the wall of hostility. Breaking down the assumed alienation and interacting with those that do not know Christ. But beyond that, reconciliation is not simply something that happens between an unbeliever and a believer when the unbeliever responds to Christ. Reconciliation is to be a way of life. We are to be living as those who have received the Gospel of Christ, as people who are peacemakers. As people who understand that we were all alienated from God. It is only through Jesus Christ that we have any standing in this world at all and who are then with Jesus always seeking to reconcile, to ask forgiveness, to offer peace, to reach out to those who may by nature be alienated from us. Christian, do you see yourself that way? Do you understand yourself to be a person who moves about in this world as a reconciler? One who brings people together. One who seeks peace. Not by compromise of the truth, but through selfless love. And I think that's the way for many. There are some who will just hate our message and hate us, and that's all there will be to it. But there will be many who hate the message But because we selflessly love them, they'll remain open. They'll listen. And reconciliation can happen then through the power of God. But let's remember, this is not going to happen apart from dependence on Paul's God. You are not going to be a reconciler. You're going to stir up trouble. You're going to naturally be alienated from certain people. You are going to pursue hostilities by nature. But in the grace of God... We can live out the life of Christ by being reconcilers, bringing parties together, embracing differences, embracing people who are different. What is the basis of that reconciliation? It is, obviously, the cross of Jesus Christ. Why do I live as a peacemaker, as a reconciler? Why do I despise alienation and don't live with it and don't enjoy it? Because Jesus Christ through His death and resurrection, reconciled me to God. If you've come here this morning in your sin, that sin alienates you from God. The only thing that a pure God can do is to come down in judgment upon you.
like a homeowner removes a rat that's dead in the closet. He's got to get it out. But this same God reaches out to you and says, Come. My son has paid the penalty of your sin. He has risen from the dead. And if you will turn from your sins, we can be reconciled. The greatest alienation in this world is not between nations and ethnicities. It is between the sinner and God. And if Jesus fixed that problem, then He can bring any two alienated parties together. And that's what He's doing here in Jerusalem. That's what He's doing at Mason's home. Here in this one spot in the midst of all the turmoil, here are brothers, sisters in Christ, united by the Gospel. We see Paul's journey to Jerusalem, and we look then, secondly, at Paul's mission of reconciliation in Jesus' footsteps, beginning at verse 17. I have got to fly here, but if we could kind of pull ourselves together and work hard together, let's work our way through this mission of reconciliation. We now look at Paul's ministry here in Jerusalem. Let me say, as we enter into verse 17, Christianity always seeks to manage the tension between being humble, faithful citizens of the culture and proclaimers of Jesus' lordship. Remember this tension. Christians are not insurrectionists or violators of the peace. They're, however, evangelists who trouble the status quo. It's both and. And Paul enters Jerusalem with utterly no interest in stirring up any trouble. He enters town in the company of Gentiles, and trouble is sure to find him. Because of that, Jerusalem, as one author put it, was in a uniquely xenophobic way at this time. Aliens were not appreciated. Pilgrims, only if they were Jews, were appreciated. Only if they walked accordance to the law as, as the Jews saw it. But Paul walks into town with his arms spread wide open, saying, I'm here to cause no trouble. I'm here to talk. I'm here to help. I'm here to draw people together around our Messiah. That's how he enters. Notice what happens. Verse 17, When they had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. Great note. Just like Mason. The brothers there in Jerusalem are receiving this group of Gentiles and Paul, the Gentile evangelist. Jesus has broken down the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, uniting them in one body and showing this in this context in Jerusalem. What a glorious meeting, heightened by the more formal meeting the next day. Verse 18, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, what did they do? They glorified God. What a great word. Here's James, this highly esteemed man in Israel. There's texts today that indicate how highly respected he was. Gathering here, probably a leader among these, leader, uh, among these elders, these leaders of the church of Jerusalem. Um, he, he's a, it's, it's crucial here how these leaders respond to Paul. And notice it, don't fall asleep here. Now, how do they respond? They rejoice. They glorify God. These leaders of this great and sizable church there in Jerusalem. Can you see the scene? 
Paul coming in here and saying in this formal gathering, I mean, how will they receive him? He says, gentlemen, I want to show you the fruits of my labors in the gospel and of Jesus' power to redeem. This is Sopater here. I'd like you to meet him. He's from the city of Berea. He's come to trust Jesus Christ. And these two, this, these two here, this Aristarchus and this is Secundus, I'd like you to meet them. They're from Thessalonica. I need to tell you some more stories about that place, but we'll have to wait till later on that. Amazing, amazing. These men have come to know the Lord as others have there, and a great church has formed. And this is Gaius here from Derby. And then there's Tychicus and Trophimus. They're Ephesians and Oh, I can't wait to tell you about what God has done at Ephesus and the great church that has developed there, but we'll get to that later. This is Dr. Luke, my good friend, who's journeyed with us and has agreed to come here and is writing a history uh, on the Christian faith. You might want to talk to him later. And this young man over here, this man is a special guy. He's a trusted soldier of Christ. His name is Timothy. He's from Lystra. That's the place where one minute I was Hermes and the next minute I was getting stoned to death, but it was all worth it because this young man, I, had, I have leaned on him. Here he stands before these great leaders of this Jewish church, and they do the only thing you can do if you get it, and that's worship. They glorified God. God is great. Look what he's done. Now we go from this scene and out into the street and we call in the average Jew. Fairly observant of the law, tries to be careful and and sees himself as a child of Abraham and uh, prays to God. Come on in here. I want you to meet these gentlemen here. Who are they? These are Gentiles that have come to trust Messiah. You know how that average Jew would look at those men? He'd say, those people are no better than pigs. I count them as mangy dogs. And he'd spin on his heel and walk away and go pray at the temple. That's the world that Paul's bringing these men into. And that's the world where these leaders of the Jerusalem church glorify God and welcome these Gentile believers in Christ. Now, they go on to explain to Paul that God has also been working among them. Notice this in the text. Verse 20, And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. Let's stop there for a moment. They are zeal- there's a great response to the gospel among the Jews. And they are all zealous for the law, which is an indication that they are, many of them are influenced by the Pharisaic position to follow strictly the traditional interpretations of the law of Moses. And as they respond to Paul, the news gets a little worse. And they, verse 21, have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. That had to strike horror in Paul's heart. 
Now, in one sense, this report is right. In one sense, it's not at all. Paul did not teach Jewish Christians that they could no longer circumcise their children. What he taught them was that they could not rely on that to get them close to God, to justify them. The customs, that, that's not a problem. It's not going to hurt anything at all. It hurt the boy for a little bit, but it's not going to hurt anything in the big scheme of things. Not at all. But if you follow the law and think that that's going to make you right with God, no, then he stood up and said, absolutely not. So they were right and they weren't right. But what he did teach was that salvation was by faith alone and Christ alone. Ritual observance of the law was unnecessary for salvation. They were free to follow Jewish customs as long as they did not fail to realize that salvation is in Christ not in observance of the law. But did you get the full weight of this verse? If you were asked and interviewed a little bit before this whole scene, as as Paul's working his way to Jerusalem, will there be Jews who despise him? What would you say? Absolutely. But if we were asked the question, are there going to be genuine, born-again Christians there who despise Paul? How could anybody despise Paul, who's a true believer? If he came into our assembly, we'd jump and, man, it'd be great. They hated Paul. In one sense of the term, they despised him. They were feeding a feeling of alienation toward him because he was not living the way they were. They didn't like it. They didn't understand the full implications of the gospel. These are Christians. This is not good news. James and the elders are fully aware of Paul's poor status among these Jewish Christians. Yet do you notice what is interesting here? They are incapable of stemming the tide. What they're saying as shepherds is, we are patiently granting watch care of these people, but we have to break the news to you, Paul. They're really against you. And this isn't going to end until Jesus basically calls everybody out of the pool and destroys Jerusalem in just a few years. And the, the, the Jewish church is absolutely scattered from Jerusalem. They don't get this fixed. Why? Because they're being dominated by their culture. This is a time in which Jewish foment for revolt is growing and growing. If you're a Jew... You're not a Gentile. And if you're really a Jew, you're not even a Hebraic Jew, but you're certainly not one of those Messiah, Jesus' Messiah people. That external, ungodly world is influencing these believers, and they don't like Paul. They don't like what he's teaching. They're opposed to him already. They don't even perhaps know him. James and the elders come up with a plan. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under an oath. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. These four men take a Nazarite vow, number six. They're not to cut their hair during the length of the vow, which would really be something we would maybe call more like a period of devotion to God. They're not to touch anything from the vine. 
and they're not to touch a dead body. And when the vow ends, this period of devotion, either thanking God for something he's done or asking God for future blessing, they would cut their hair, it would be offered. There were also some expensive offerings that would come. Here's what we'll do, Paul. You pay their expenses and that will be seen. It is an act of piety. And it will be respected by the Jews. Along with this, you've been in Gentile territory, so go to the temple. There's a seven-day purification ritual. Follow that ritual. You'll be purified from having been among the Gentiles. Then you can go and pay for the, the offerings for these four men. And this should satisfy all sides. Sounds like a great plan. It's not going to work at all. But Paul is not worried about that. He heeds their advice. But before he gets there, the elders at Jerusalem want to make something very clear. We have not changed our view about the place of the law with Gentiles. That's the point of verse 25. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. That's it. Not asking that the Gentiles follow these ritualistic laws. We're just asking that you do. And then, therefore, obviously not to gain righteousness with God, but simply to appease the Jews around and to settle the situation a little. Not a problem, says Paul. He goes forward, verse 26. Took the men the next day, purified himself along with them, and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. All of this according to the ritual of the temple. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. This is what James and the elders didn't see coming. How influential Paul's ministry had been in the province of Asia. There were people who actually recognized him in Jerusalem, probably from Ephesus. And they cry out, verse 28, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. But Paul's following all customs here, but that's not how his opponents see it. These unbelieving Jews, it would have been an away game for them in Ephesus, and they were not able to do anything to stop Paul in Asia. But now they're in a home game, and they whistle the troops together and say, listen, this is the guy who's causing so much trouble among the Jews and the Gentiles. We've got to stop him. Now, what's the problem with bringing Trophimus into the temple area? What, what on earth is the problem with that? This large area just goes all the way around the temple, but you can see the huge, massive courtyard. This is called the Court of the Gentiles. Any Gentile was invited through the city gate into this courtyard area, and they could, they could pray, do whatever they wanted to do there. But there's this wall hill here called the Soreg. That wall, that low wall, no Gentile could ever cross that wall. And equally spaced were signs on this wall, one in Latin, the next one in Greek, the next one in Latin, the next one in Greek. These signs read this way. No foreigner is to enter past this barrier around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death which follows. That was the law. This law was so 
strong that if you were a Roman citizen and crossed past that, law, that wall, the Jews could kill you. They weren't allowed to exercise capital punishment for anything else, but they could for this. So this wall, they're saying, Paul brought Trophimus into this area past the boundary for the Gentiles. Now here, looking down into the temple area, we have here the court of the women. So if you think back here, we're, we're going we're gonna to walk in right into this area here. There's the court of the women. The court of the women, women can come in here. Je- Jewish men are able to come in this area, the court of the men, all around here. Well, and and uh, no, obviously only priests into the temple itself. But Paul is coming out of a gate here. He has, and uh, the, the, this is when all of the trouble starts. I'll give you another picture. This is a different uh, model. But here's that wall. Um, so... You're looking at these gates here, the wall here, or to take another look at it, the wall here. He, you brought him past here, he'll, go, he'll be pushed out of the gate and they'll shut these gates, what we see in the text. Well, that's, that's what's going on, that's why this is so significant. Paul is no idiot. I mean, he's, he's clearly not done this. He would never do such a thing. This is a tremendous leap in logic by the crowd which falsely accuses Paul of a capital crime. Ironically, they accuse him of defiling the temple while he is working overtime to purify himself to make sure he doesn't defile the temple on their terms. But Paul now is in serious danger. Verse 30, Then all the city was stirred up And the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, the court of the Jews, Jewish men. And at once, the gates were shut so as not to defile the inner sanctum any further. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul at that point. Now remember the situation. There's great political upheaval. We're in an occupied nation. Israel has a chip on their shoulders. This is their turf. This is their deal. They shut the gates. But the tribune, Claudius Lysias, garrisoned with the troops in the fortress Antonio on the northwest side of the temple, rushes down and is going to save the day for Paul, or he would have been ripped limb from limb, and there would have been nothing to prosecute against that. So, we'll just say that it was in this area, uh, because off here, in this direction to the northwest, is a great fortress Antonia. This fortress here, the soldiers... And Claudius Lysias would have come down steps that led through this portico into this great um, area of the court of the Gentiles. Here's you just see the edge of that um, that wall that divided them off. So Paul's in this place, coming out of the gate. The gates are shut. They're brought out in here, and the and the the uh, crowd is is about to kill him. But these soldiers arrive. They're on high alert. This is a festival time. city is full of Jews, and revolt might break out at any time. And they respond quickly. Verse 33, Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. 
Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. So back to the, the slide here. Underneath here are steps heading up into the fortress, and as he's going up there, the crowd is about to kill Paul. They have to actually lift him up in the air to get him away from the people. They don't want to start slaughtering people because that can end in a very ugly way. So for now, they're kind of bearing with everybody and trying to bring this thing to settle down. The tribune's job was to keep peace, and sometimes the best way to do that pragmatically is to let those who trouble the peace get their way. And that's what he does at this moment. Now, if you have to get, if you're aware of the Bible very much at all, you have to have a little sense of deja vu right now, don't you? To say, this sounds all very, very similar. And indeed it does. Notice the remarkable parallels between the Apostle Paul's journey to Jerusalem and Jesus' final journey there as he went to die. Both determined resolve to fulfill God's will in Jerusalem where danger awaits. If we would look up these passages, you'll see direct linkage. There, in both Luke's account of Jesus' life and his account of Paul in Acts, includes three predictions of suffering while en route. That is, while Jesus and Paul are en route to Jerusalem. Three predictions of suffering. There's entrance into Jerusalem strategically timed to coincide with a major Jewish festival. Both of them go through some efforts to arrive just at the right time, particularly Jesus, you'll remember. There was an arrest based on false charges by Jews who hand the accused over to the Roman authorities. The Roman authorities, in both cases, find no fault and pronounce innocence three times in the text. And at the end, a mob of Jews cry out for execution. Obviously, Paul is going to last a little bit longer. He will die, not in Jerusalem, not on a cross, but he is clearly marching in the steps of Jesus Christ. Our world does not understand reconciliation. And so it could never understand someone like Paul going to Jerusalem and doing such things. But Jesus' Jerusalem journey was a mission to unite sinners to God and thereby to unite people who were so at odds and alienated. He came to unite people who are different than we are. All nations, all cultures, all shapes and sizes, the young and the old, the rich and the poor, the intelligent, the common, the good-looking, the ugly, the charismatic, the dull. He came to unite all kinds of people in Christ. That was Christ's mission. And if we get that mission, then we will live a life of reconciliation. I'd like you to hear it. You'll bear with me just a bit longer. You've got to hear these words now in light of this text. Paul writes to the Ephesian church these words. Remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision, which is made of the flesh by hands. But remember, you were at that time separated from Christ. Listen to the words of wall, separation, division, alienation. You were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." That's what Jesus was up to, to make peace. We could say a lot of other things he was up to in his death and resurrection, but he sought to make peace between the two and might reconcile us both to God. There's the larger project. To reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What hostility? A sinner's alienation from God and a sinner's alienation from sinners. That's what Jesus came to kill. That doesn't exactly encourage me to want to run out and be at odds with somebody. To pursue alienation, it encourages us to walk out into this world asking this question, have I been reconciled to God? As a sinner alienated from God, have I come to trust in Jesus Christ's death in my place to pay the penalty of my sin so that I could be united to God through Christ? Have you trusted that message? Are you at odds then as a believer in the gospel of Christ? If you're not a believer in that reconciling work, then the only response is to come to Christ and to realize that through Him, There is reconciliation with God, sins forgiven, and a right relationship restored. But if you've come to embrace that message, are you at odds with someone? Jesus came to kill hostilities. That was his purpose. Are you at odds with someone in your neighborhood, in your extended family, in your immediate family, in this church? If we understand salvation, then we come to understand that we're to live a life of reconciliation. God reconciling, in fact, not only us through the death of Christ, but through the death of Christ, God is in the project of reconciling the entire universe to Himself. Restoring the heavens and the earth for all eternity And that is because that's who He is. A God who loves to reconcile with His enemies and who is willing to pay the ultimate price to get it done. Are we peacemakers? Are we uniters? Are we people in any way, shape, or form that are seeking to stir up and encourage alienation and hostility? Cutting people out. Jesus has no time for clicks. Jesus has no time in the right sense of the word understood for racists and racism. He has no time for two Christians that can't get along. He came to kill alienation and hostility by the cross. And if we catch that point, the only thing we can do is praise Him with a life that is the life of a peacemaker 
and a reconciler. May God find us in that pattern today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this account and for our salvation. We give thanks for what you have done through Jesus and pray that we will be praising and rejoicing in your name because of this great work of reconciliation and never, ever grow tired of it. Thank you for saving our souls. For anyone separated from Christ, I pray that you would break down the barriers and permit them to see your love, your mercy, and the desire that you have to end the hostility, to love with infinite love. Father, please work to that end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.